0: Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario.
1: I'm Alvin Tejo. And I'm Alexi White.
0: And today we're talking about systemic racism in Ontario, the fallacy that we have overcome this problem, and the myriad of ways that the Ford government is undermining anti-racism work and police accountability. The images of police and military clashing with protesters in the United States in recent days have been deeply troubling, as if President Trump's efforts to fan the flames. Here in Ontario, protests were sparked by the death of Regis Kerensky-Paquette. She fell 24 stories from a high park high rise during an encounter with the police on May 27th. Her family has said police were alone with her in her apartment just before she died and that she cried out, mom, help, before going silent. An investigation by the SIU is ongoing. Earlier this week, Premier Ford was asked about the protests south of the border. And rather than confront the anti-Black racism in our own history and the present, Doug Ford made the following comment. They have their issues in the U.S. It's like night and day compared to Canada. And here's the rest of his comments in his own words.
2: So I, you know, again, uh, good luck to him. And uh, hopefully they can straighten out their problems. And thank God, thank
1: God that uh, we're different than the United States. And we don't have the systemic, deep roots they, they have had for years. Yes,
0: that actually happened. And he actually said that. Ford subsequently walked his comments back the next day, declaring in the legislature on Wednesday, of course, there's systemic racism in Ontario. There's systemic racism across the country. Incidentally, though, this Sunday, June 7th, will mark two years since Doug Ford was elected with a majority government. So happy anniversary, Ontario. And this week was also the third anniversary of Ontario's Anti-Racism Act coming into force. So joining us for today's conversation, we're pleased to welcome back the man who actually tabled the Anti-Racism Act in the legislature three years ago, Michael Coteau. Michael is currently the Liberal MPP for Don Valley East. He was one of the seven Liberal MPPs elected two years ago and was the runner-up in the recent Liberal Party leadership race. He was first elected in 2011 and went on to serve as a minister in multiple portfolios, including as Ontario's first minister, responsible for anti-racism. Ontario's Anti-Racism Act created the Ontario Anti-Racism Directorate and set out requirements for the province to maintain an anti-racism strategy and establish targets and indicators to measure... The effectiveness of that strategy. So, Michael, it's great to talk to you again, and uh, welcome back to Ontario Loud.
2: Well, thanks for having me, and uh, I'm also a recovering uh, former staffer. I used to work on Parliament Hill for uh, John Manley uh, back in the Kretchen government days. So, you can add that to my, uh, I guess,
0: background as well. <laughs> yeah, that'll be. We'll include that in your next intro. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> So, Michael, let's start with the premier's comments and uh, his subsequent retraction. The day he said he didn't believe there was systemic racism in Ontario was actually the same day that he ignored your question to him about that during question period. So, I just wanted to play uh, your question really quickly now.
2: Premier, the first question I asked you in this legislature almost two years ago is, do you believe systemic racism is real, which you failed to answer? I'll ask you de- again, do you believe that systemic racism and anti-black racism is real? And if so, what are you going to do as the Premier of this great province to, to combat these uh, this forms of racism? And please, have the decency, Premier, to answer this question. You owe it to so many people here in Ontario question. as a leader to answer it.
0: So, uh, Michael, I guess the question is, I mean, it's been a couple of years. He didn't answer you the first time. He didn't answer you earlier this week. I, I know he sort of walked it back the next day, but I guess what, what's your reaction and what do you think he doesn't understand about anti-Black racism here in Ontario?
2: Well, one of the things I, I should mention is uh, one of the motivators, besides obviously what's happening in the world today, uh, what we're seeing down south. And what we're seeing uh, in different parts of uh, our country and around the world uh, in regards to uh, racial injustice that's taking place was that this was the third anniversary just a few days ago. It was the third anniversary of the anti-racism bill in Ontario. It was the first of its kind uh, in Canada and North America and still is the only piece of legislation that I'm aware of uh, that actually identifies systemic racism and anti-black racism and other forms of, of hate and puts it into a, a legal framework to be addressed. No other jurisdiction has that. We have that tool here in Ontario, which, uh, which creates uh, data standards and gives us other tools to, uh, to combat systemic racism. And unfortunately, Doug Ford has pushed it to the side over the last two years while he's been in government, and they've uh, actually made massive cuts to the anti-racism directorate and many other anti-racism initiatives and that's why we see we've seen because of uh, what's happening and the pressure that's out there publicly in regards to what they expect from government. We saw Doug Ford uh, not able to answer that question one way and get away with it again two years later. In fact, people started pushing forward and and challenging the premier. Uh, the head of the Green Party did that. The NDP did it. Mitzi Hunter and myself did it. So it was uh, something that he had to respond to. And what we're seeing the premier do today is just scramble to try to find solutions to uh, something he's neglected for two years.
1: And you mentioned that the Ford government has um, not uh, done anything really to push this file forward. In fact, they've, they've done a lot of things to undermine it. Um, so they've disbanded the anti-racism committees that existed under the liberals. They've uh, stopped holding a mandatory uh, annual anti-racism conference that was previously held. Uh, and as you said, they've cut funding to the anti-racism directorate. So with the announcement this week that the premier is reestablishing the Youth Council on Racism or a council like it, um, and that Jamil Giovanni has been tasked to lead it. He's been a leader in the community for quite a while. Do you think that the premier is going to take his advice seriously? Do you think this signals some kind of new approach to the anti-racism file going forward?
2: Remember, this um, response, is, it doesn't really address the, the issues. Like They're setting up a youth advisory council. You know, it will be made up of many different youth and, you know, from all walks of life, and they'll be able to uh, provide the premier with some insight and feedback and advice. I think it's a good thing. You know, we had that two years ago, and I think it'll be, you know, it'll be good to reinstate that after Ford got rid of it. But we're talking about anti-racism work here. You know, when you look at Bill 175 that the previous uh, liberal government put forward that uh, looked at police oversight. You know, that was based on a anti-racism lens. When we talk about the Black Youth Action Plan, again, an anti-racism lens. When we talk about the investments into uh, into mental health that uh, wanted to focus on racialized groups and Indigenous uh, youth and those cuts were made, you know, it was looked through uh, an anti-racism lens. You know, we have a premier now that's made cuts to the Indigenous file, who's made cuts to after-school programs that uh, were geared to help uh, some of the most challenging neighborhoods and the very racialized communities uh, in Toronto and across Ontario, and we've seen this premier cut programs uh, that were specifically geared through the Black Youth Action Plan halfway through their mandate of being delivered, where, you know, three-year commitment was made and they've just been cut off. So it's ongoing and it it goes into legal aid, it goes into OSAP, it goes on and on and on. So by making this announcement to set up an advisory committee and attaching $1.5 million to it, uh, in the middle of a COVID crisis being their top news story to to fight and combat systemic racism, is uh, is pretty sad.
0: So Michael when you're when you're in the legislature and I know everyone's social distancing but you're paying attention to to what's happening in the house and and seeing how other mpps are reacting when you occasionally speak to your colleagues across the aisle in the progressive conservative party do they talk about what's driving the hostility is uh, I just kind of want to get your take on what you think if it's whether or not an issue of them not understanding what the situation actually is, or do they just not care? Is there you know, a, an actual difference of opinion in the role of government trying to lead this change, or are they just reacting to the political reality that right now they have to say and do something?
2: If you listen to what the premier has said about racism over the last two years with the Faith Goldie piece that was an original uh, challenge he had, you know he always says, uh, my family has the you know has deep relationships with the black community. we've got their back. He takes an approach a very personal approach to racism as a as a leader. And what the premier has to realize that this is not about him. This is not about his personal relationships with the Black community. It's not about you know him going into a, a Black-owned business or a restaurant or dropping by an event with a cultural group. This is not what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about anti-racism work, which is using ver- a, a very scientific data-driven dri- approach to looking for ways to combat systemic racism and other forms of, of, of racism like anti-Black racism and putting in policy that actually addresses those issues. This is not about him. This is about Ontario, and it's about good data and being able to drive an agenda based on those, uh, that data and the outcomes of, of different policies. So you know, he needs to move away from that and step into, I think, the, the modern world of, uh, of true anti-racism work and, uh, and start addressing issues from that perspective, not from a personal standpoint.
0: He definitely seems to equate having the largest percentage of of black Canadians in his riding as sort of a way to show that he understands what's happening. Well, as you mentioned, he hasn't really done anything to address the issues that's facing them and the community at large. I don't know if you remember this album, but two years ago, when I asked
2: him a question about that, he talked about bringing some kids, uh, you know, black kids up to his cottage. You know, that was his uh, response to uh, fighting systemic racism. You know, and again, it's uh, it goes back to you know his personal feelings and approaches, and it's a very dangerous place to to be when you know you're relying exclusively on how you feel and what your personal relationships are when it comes to fighting systemic racism in Thunder Bay and and uh, Windsor and Kenora and and Toronto and you know Capiscasing Ontario. Like you can't you can't do that. It has to be based on numbers and data. And when we start analyzing and collecting good data, we can actually make better decisions and. Yes, there's a moral imperative to doing this, but there's also an economic piece to it. It saves taxpayers dollars and it allows for us to better focus our resources to get the best impact. And that's what he's missing. You know, if he's a true businessman, like he says he is, and he's going to run this government like a, like a business, you know, remove the emotion and start uh, applying the, the analytics and make decisions based on on good data.
1: So shifting gears if we can slightly to uh, the related issue of police accountability um, in Ontario, uh, provincially and municipally. Last year, the Ford government passed the Community Safety and Policing Act, which replaced the liberal legislation from the year previous to that. Uh, and the new act was criticized for weakening both the Special Investigations Unit, which probes deaths, uh, serious injuries and allegations of sexual assault against police, and also weakening the Police Complaints Watchdog, the Office of the Independent Police Review Director what do you think the government should be doing to strengthen police oversight at the provincial level and what what is driving the conservative perspective on this issue
2: justice tolik went across ontario and ran probably one of the most comprehensive consultations on uh, police reform in the history of this province and and really came up with a uh, a series of recommendations that did go into transparency and oversight and reforming you know the way in which police uh, police organizations investigate the, the, themselves and you know, how uh, police officers can testify when it comes to being obligated to to be witnesses, things like that, or even the collection of data uh, within the police force. You know, those are the types of things that, you know, the, that groundwork that uh, the Attorney General at the time, Yasser Nakfi, and uh, Marie-France Delon did as Solicitor General. It was extraordinary work, and it was, again, way ahead of any other jurisdiction in North America. And, you um, when uh, when the government uh, changed, uh, they got rid of so many of those important pieces, and I think there's a lot of frustration. The big challenge today is that we don't hear a lot of, you know, a lot a big conversation about that specific item, because there's so many things that have just been, you know, destroyed. You know, from autism to, you know, even the 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 way municipalities are facing uh, um, municipalities are funded, and now, of course, with the COVID and uh, what's happening in long-term care, there's so many things happening that all of these important issues seem to be at the sidelines. But I think over the next two years, especially with what's happening in the United States and what's happening here in Ontario, when it comes to uh, to the way government and institutions interact with uh, individuals, and especially based on the, the color of their skin, uh, we are going to see more attention focused on these issues. And Doug Ford has to respond. So the big, most important thing here is now that he's admitted after two years that systemic racism is real, the next big question is, well, what are you going to do about it? And why didn't you implement things like Bill 175 to, uh, to reform uh, police uh, services in Ontario? So that's going to be a big question he's going to have to answer. And he cannot just you know, establish an advisory committee and think that he's, uh, he's washed his hands uh, clean of this issue because there's a lot more work to do.
1: I completely agree with you on all those all those small decisions that are made every day. I mean, this isn't a particularly small decision—the Community Safety and Policing Act—but in general, I and mean, we've all we've all been staffers, as you said. And yeah. it's you know, there's there's what you read in the media, and then there's the thousands of small decisions that are never going to be covered that are happening every single day in government that people just don't know about. And when you have the perspective of having been inside, those are the sleeper issues that you think you know we're, we don't even know what we're going to need to clean up.
2: You're so right because you look at like, for example, long-term care and the fact that they stopped the inspections and two years later we're seeing the impacts because of a crisis. What does it take to reveal the cracks and the, the cuts that you know that the Ford government has made? you know when we look in public education, uh, we know that we were changing, reducing the dropout rate drastically. What will it look like ten years from now, based on the fact that they've, you know, that they've uh, they've made cuts to public education? What will it look like in autism services? The fact that you know they haven't been spending the money allocated. What will anti-racism work look like uh, a decade from now, because of the cuts they've made and the fact that they've they've uh, really uh, watered down a lot of the the obligation and and scope that was outlined through the legislation these are you know it's th- that's the worst part about government is that you you sometimes have to wait 5 10 years to figure out you know what the impacts like but you know during covid we're seeing what the impact in long term care and healthcare uh looks like because of the cuts in public health and in uh, inspections so you know we should use that as a, a bit of foresight to understand you know what the impact of these cuts look like when pressure in, in systems are pushed to the
1: extreme So as a Toronto MPP, uh, thinking municipally about the Toronto Police Service, there's been a resurgence recently in people calling for defunding the police. Um, And it's frequently noted that the police, for example, respond to a lot of situations that could probably be avoided or at least greatly reduced in frequency if we funded social services like housing, mental health, things like that. And also that there are calls that perhaps other health or social work professionals could be available to respond to rather than having police respond to so many things. Do you think Toronto should be moving uh, some of the billion dollars it spends annually on police over to other social services and community safety programs that don't rely so much on armed officers? You
2: see, it it's not as simple as just taking some money from, like for example, the police and just moving it to another area uh, and uh, and thinking that you know we're going to see an impact. You have to be very strategic on how that money is moved over. But the simple fact is, I think the place where you need to start from is that. If you make more investments into preventative measures and ways to, you know, keep young people engaged, chances are you're going to have less need to, uh, you know, for policing and for corrections. So I always use this example. So Devon Jones, a teacher and researcher out in the West End, put out a publication a few years ago that uh, said that collectively in the Jane and Finch community now Alvin, you've probably heard me say this before that in the Jane and Finch community 80 million dollars is spent per year on policing and incarcerating people from that one community same thing with the Lawrence Heights uh, area now if that's if that's a fact and um, when you start to actually look at the after school programs options in those communities and you'll find that there are, there are not many Programs in those communities, like I mean, what would happen if you start to heavily invest into those programs? You know, what would the uh, that eighty million dollars spend look like over a five year period? I can guarantee you that it will drop drastically, and that that way you can start moving more money into you know away from corrections, the justice system, policing, and other things that are costing the system into preventative and uh, into programs that actually invest into people. And I think that's the approach we need to take. I don't think it's as simple as saying we're going to take 200 million from the police and move it into these uh, these preventative programs. I think it's a, a combination of equ- like investing until we actually see outcome, and then moving money based on outcome.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, Michael, I remember we talked quite a bit during the leadership race around how interconnected a lot of these things are. And, you know, I like talking about a basic income and how much that would affect healthcare, how much that would affect education, and how much that would affect crime. And then you start thinking about these programs and all these other things that the Ford government has cut, and how that contributes to increasing poverty, increasing racism, increasing division between between races and people uh, and socioeconomic status here in this in this province. And you know, I think we're trying to confront systemic racism, but we're also trying to do it at the same time as we're in the middle of a increasingly divisive, polarized political climate. So I guess our last question to you is, you know, how do you think we turn the energy from the movement today and the conversations that people are having right now in this moment into actual change?
2: What a great question, Alvin. And uh, I, you know, I just want to say I I really enjoyed the year uh, campaigning, uh, you know, along with you in Ontario, and you know that we would cross each other's paths all the time on the road and be at the same events, and it was nice being able to learn more about. You know your passion for things like basic income, and we had some uh, some good debates and some good conversations on the issue. And I think we're very aligned with uh, you know a lot of our perspective on how to approach things. And the question you just asked, I think, is one of the most important questions today. And you know, people keep asking me, "Well, what can I do to help? What can I do to help, Michael?" And um, I think it's going to take a, a, a long time to truly answer that question. But I know right now, and this is what I say to media, and this is what I say to, uh, you know, to businesses, don't make these issues, issues that are part of, you know, the flavor of the month, you know, just come and go. You know, we deal with these really big issues like systemic racism or youth violence, you know, and poverty when we see when we, when we're, when we're for some, like something happens and we react to it, we need to have these conversations constantly and we need to, to think about them all the time and look for ways to actually, you know, combat systemic racism when we're in crisis, but also when we're not in crisis, when we're, you know, when we can actually focus on things and invest the time long-term as, uh, as government. So, um, so for me, um, I think it's going to take a long time to answer that question, uh, but I do know, you know, we can all make a difference by uh, by thinking about these questions and doing things locally. And um, when we have the opportunity to uh, to speak up against racism, uh, we actually uh, we actually do it.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. Thank you for all your work on this uh, over the years as well. I hope you you and your family are doing well.
2: Uh, likewise, and uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. I always enjoy being on the program and. Uh, Please uh, keep me in mind for the future. Thank you.
0: That's all the time we have for today. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Special thanks to Alexi for researching today's episode. And thank you again to Michael Coto for sharing his thoughts. Join us next week as we get to know a region of Ontario and visit the North. Talk about all the issues affecting Northerners, including the hot topic of energy. We'll have special guest Glenn Tebow, former MPP for Sudbury and Minister of Energy. Visit us at ontarioloud.ca, where you can share and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or even on your smart speaker. Just say, Alexa, play Ontario Loud podcast. Feel free to share your thoughts with us on our episodes on Twitter, or you can find us at Ontario Loud. Ontario Loud is Chris Martin, Alexi White, Karima Talwar Kapoor, Sam Andry, and myself, Alvin Tejo. Thanks to our support team, Aisha Anwar and Harman Mundi, and of course, all our supporters on Patreon. See you next time. Stay safe.